Good afternoon. This is Jasmine, and you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today is Saturday, October the 15th, but you are listening to this, uh, at least the first time you're hearing it, is going to be Sunday, October the 16th. Uh, and I am here with a special guest, longtime listener, first time guest host. So as you all know, if you've been listening to the show, uh, Reese and Emily are both no longer in Brooklyn. <laughs> and as such, like you're not going to hear them on the show as much anymore. So we'll be having some other people on and hopefully some new regular co-hosts pretty soon. On today's episode, we have with us Alyssa. How are you? Hi, Jasmine. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Me too. You know, like you seem like a pretty nice person. (laughs) (laughs) So Alyssa and I, we've been friends for a while and we're both uh, Brooklyn people. So we're both local. Uh, So yeah, it'll be nice to talk to somebody in the same time zone. (laughs) It's been a while since that's been the case. Uh, So on this week's episode, for the local news, we're going to be talking about um, controversy around um, asylum seekers that are being placed in Staten Island temporarily. For national news, uh, we'll be discussing some leaked audio from an L.A. City Council meeting that's caused a lot of disruption and scandal. For world news, we'll be talking about uh, Europe turning to Africa for natural gas resources. And for the good news, we have some uh, encouraging news about bike lanes. I will be discussing the local news. Uh, This is an article that is from The Gothamist. It was written by Jake Offenharts on October the 14th. The title is, An Influx of Migrants Has Divided a Staten Island Neighborhood quote, the natives are getting restless. Uh, So I'll read pretty much all of it. But as always, I cut out some parts for the sake of time. So you can always uh, read the full thing on your own. Thousands of asylum seekers are pouring into New York City amid a national political battle over immigration. But as hundreds arrive in Staten Island, they're landing in the crosshairs of another ideological fight playing out locally. Mayor Eric Adams announced this week that new emergency shelters would soon be coming to communities across the five boroughs. In the meantime, migrants are being housed in shelters and empty hotels. In the West Shore neighborhood of Travis, where two-thirds of voters back Donald Trump, the transfer of migrants to three little-used hotels has divided the close-knit community. The arrival of roughly 600 asylum seekers from Latin America has fostered suspicion, acts of compassion, and a familiar refrain in the city's most conservative borough, that they've been forgotten by City Hall. For the last 10 days, the owners of Verdi's Pizza and Pasta House have been delivering free pies to the recently arrived migrants in the hotels, as as well as offering leftovers to those who wander into the store. In response, some residents have threatened to boycott the shop, accusing them of supporting a migrant invasion. 
At a community board meeting on Tuesday, Verde's owner, Sam Bongiovanni, sought to assure his neighbors that his political views aligned with the community. We want everyone to understand that we are Republicans and we don't like the border policy, he said, but these are family people. When we fed them, they acted like they hadn't eaten in two days. The following night, volunteers passed out bananas and blankets to a line of asylum seekers outside a block of hotels in Travis. Traffic whizzed by on the nearby expressway as a gaggle of children bounced a ball in the hotel parking lot. In the distance, resident Karen Prisonzano, oh, what a name, Prisonzano discreetly filmed the scene. She uploaded the footage to the Travis Neighborhood Watch, a Facebook group where residents keep close tabs on the migrants. In recent days, members of the Facebook group have frequently shared photos of asylum seekers moving around the neighborhood, often underdressed in flip-flops and t-shirts. This area is becoming a wasteland, Prisonzano lamented to the group. Reached by phone, she said her comments did not represent the view of her employer, Project Hospitality, which is currently working with the city to provide support for migrants. I have to look out for the safety of my family, she said. Among some residents, discussions of migrants quickly devolved into conspiracy-laced warnings of crime. Several people told Gothamist they believed the migrants were violent convicts released from Venezuelan prisons, a common right-wing talking point without any factual basis. After the New York Post reported that migrants were going door-to-door seeking assistance and work, some Staten Islanders said they were buying security cameras or considering hiring private security. In recent days, a group of men sporting Make America Great Again apparel had begun unofficial patrols, according to one resident. They're doing that to antagonize people, said Clara Cassell, a resident of Travis originally from Puerto Rico. I'm probably the minority here when it comes to helping people. The NYPD did not respond to requests about crime reports in the neighborhood, but weekly data released by the department shows that robberies in the precinct that includes Travis are down compared to last year. Some say the arrival of the migrants in Staten Island has been met with a lack of city assistance. Wendy Newhalfen, a Staten Island resident who who has dropped off food and clothing at the hotels in recent days, said the migrants had been essentially left to fend for themselves in a neighborhood without a grocery store, or accessible public transit. A spokesperson for the Department of Social Services said the agency was committed to providing healthy food, regular meal services, and adequate nutrition for each migrant. A nearby Catholic church, Our Lady of Pity, is not accepting donations for the migrants, raising suspicion among some residents that the church does not want to be seen as political. The subject has also emerged as a wedge issue for the borough's congressional race between Republican Representative Nicole Miliotakis and her Democratic challenger, Max Rose. On Thursday, Miliotakis held a protest blaming President Joe Biden for the manufactured border crisis. 
Miliotakis, the daughter of a Cuban refugee who fled the country following the rise of Fidel Castro, has pointed to Venezuela's government as a boogeyman for socialism. Officials at the protest repeatedly accused the city of overburdening them with migrants, echoing a longstanding complaint about homeless shelters in the borough. According to City Hall, Staten Island has received just 4% of the asylum seekers currently living in city shelters. Jean Guerra, the president of the Travis Civic Association, said housing migrants in Travis for any amount of time was too long. The natives are getting restless, I can tell you that, Guerra said. Travis is a beautiful community, a patriotic community. It may not stay like that for long. So that's it for the local news story. Um, It was a bit long, but it seems like emblematic of a lot of what we're seeing in the headlines lately um, with migrants coming to the U.S. in general and being shipped to states up in the northeastern part of the country in particular. Yeah, I have a question. (laughs) I think like what stood out, one of the things that stood out was that people getting cameras i guess like security cameras in the neighborhood yes because (laughs) i i feel like i have like a con a conflicted um or conflicted feelings i guess about those types of cameras because they i can see how not in this situation but i can see how you know having security cameras especially like the ring which is the popular one could be helpful just in general but it's so it's such an invasive thing to begin with and then I don't know I just feel like it's kind of horrible how those things can they're meant for one thing I guess like safety of yourself and all that but they could be used in like a different way to I guess more of an evil way (laughs) I mean yeah I think that that is that stood out to me too but not it didn't it wasn't so much when it got to them talking about the residents saying they would install the cameras it was more the the woman that was quoted who was going around filming at random with her own personal camera to then put it on Facebook I thought that was terrible, you know, and like they mentioned, like, you know, a lot of the people, you know, these are people seeking asylum from a very difficult situation. They're coming from a place that doesn't get very cold and it's kind of chilly. It's like, of course, they're not going to be dressed like someone who's used to the weather up here that has a home. So the fact that this person is going around, first of all, that her job is with an organization that has pledged to help migrants and yet she's like going around taking pictures of vulnerable people to mock them on social media like that's it's almost like you're doing that because you want these people to be targeted or even like if you get the cameras installed you might not even see something in progress but it's just this behavior like because a person is from another country that uh, that automatically means that there's some kind of a threat and you have to go around patrolling yeah what does that mean like when they said unofficial patrols i'm like with weapons like what are they i mean but yeah it's like those all of those people who are like 
part of like their neighborhood watch and all of this and they take it upon themselves to play the police in and in their neighborhoods like I guess that's a similar thing I guess that's the point is like the they're they're seeing like people who are different from them so automatically it there that person is suspicious because they're not from the country and they're I guess like you said like they're not dressed in a certain way yeah one thing that I appreciate about this journalist is I like how whenever it's like oh people fear people say and then he'll come back and be like according to the data we have this is what's actually happening. It's like people are, oh, it's going to be unsafe. There's going to, we need to do all of this stuff. Like we need to have people patrolling. We need to film these people. And then he's like, robberies and stuff has actually gone down. Like there's been no uptick in this or like, you know, people say there's just too much, like we're just, it's unfair. Like we're, there's too many of them here. There's too many. And it's like, actually of all the people in the city that have come, only 4% have gone to one birth. That's, yeah. that means everywhere else is taken in so much more than you are. And I would think that's a borough that has a lot less congestion. Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of these articles, they don't tend to do that. It's kind of like they just basically report out what the people are claiming that are upset without checking it or being like, but what's really the case, not what your perception of it is. Because you said this is Staten Island, right? Yep. <laughs> the reddest borough. Have you ever been to Staten Island? Um, I think one time, but that's it. And that was like years ago. Like, I don't, I just went for like, one thing and then came back so I don't even I didn't explore it necessarily me neither it's like I've been on the ferry a couple of times like I think I've done it a few times where I just go on the ferry and come back immediately and then the only time I've been there for I guess longer than five minutes (laughs) like I had to run an errand and it was so it was kind of disorienting. I'm like where am I like I had to take a special bus and then walk I felt like through the wilderness to like find this one little like banking location I needed, (laughs) which is something they brought up in the article too. It's like, it's not like one of the women that was trying to help the migrants was saying like the city, even though it's spacious, it's like, it's not connected to anything. Yeah. You're even more vulnerable out there. Cause it, yeah, it's nothing is really accessible. And I do think it's kind of putting people in a position where like, you're more dependent on the kindness of the people around you when there's, you can't blend in or mix in or like have a community that's already there. So We're going to head into our first musical break. This song is 8 Million Stories by A Tribe Called Quest. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Went to Carville to get a milkshake. This honey ripped me off for all my loop kicks. The car, oh yeah, there's money in my jacket. Somebody broke into my ride and co-macked it. Yo, Chip, I tell you, man, the devil's trying it. But I'm gonna stay strong, cause I ain't buying it. Tonight I'm taking Sherry out, I don't have jack to wear. You know I got to look dipped in the fresh to gear. Ooh, I found something, so I ironed it. I think I caught up on the phone, oh shit, I'm frying it. Will someone tell me what did I do to deserve this? I think I'll pull out my suit for Sunday service. My little brother wants Barney, cool, I'm getting it. Took him down to KB, they ain't selling it. 
Here we go with the crime, yo, he's throwing fits. My blood pressure's blowing up, I can't take the shit. I finally got what he wanted, now he's good to go. Again, the rival smash. Where's my radio? What's out my car was in the shop, I had to borrow, see? They had no mercy on the car, Leo will kill me. Where the hell can Nikki be? I'm gonna smack her up. I got the tickets for the Knicks and she gon' slip me up. I need to hit a honey off, Jerome, we passed the phone. Put out my fucker hose. Oh, yo, Sheila's home. Steady smiling like a mother, yo. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Hello, welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Alyssa with our national news story. Um, So the national news story today is about um, the recent LA City Council meeting leaks, like recording leaks. Um, And I'm taking this information from two different articles um, on the Associated Press. So um, the titles of the articles, uh, one is Los Angeles Leader in Racism Scandal Resigns Council Seat by Brian Melly and Don Thompson. And then the other article is Los Angeles Council President Resigns After Racist Remarks. And uh, the contributor for that was John Ansack. And I'm just summarizing uh, both of these articles on just kind of the situation. Um, so on Monday, October 10th, Neri Martinez, uh, who is now the former LA Council Pres- City Council President, uh, resigned. And her resignation stems from um, a bunch of racist comments and discriminatory discriminatory remarks about Black and Oaxacan communities in Los Angeles um, that were leaked in an hour-long recording of a conversation with other Latino leaders in LA politics. Um, and during that meeting, she also made some remarks against or disparaging remarks against Jewish and Armenian um, communities in Los Angeles. Whoa, I didn't know that part. Yeah, and that hasn't, I, to be honest, I didn't listen to all the recording, so I didn't, but I think she made like a couple of remarks. Um, so Martini, Martinez initially stepped down uh, only f- like shortly after the recordings were released, only stepped down from her position as council president, and she announced a leave of absence. But protesters um, called for her resignation and are still calling for the resignation of other leaders that were involved. Um, That conversation that was leaked um, was actually recorded in October 2021. So it was about a year ago. And it was about um, a redistricting process. Um, But that eventually turned into a conversation about Black political power in L.A. and then specifically how they could use that process to re- reduce the power of the Black voter. And then that kind of then further devolved into the anti-Black and racist remarks um, that Martinez made. Um, so according to the article, the articles on Associated Press, um, Martinez expressed shame in her statement, 
saying it is not it is not my apologies that matter most. It will be the actions I take from this day forward. I hope that you will give me the opportunity to make amends. So her resignation statement did not actually address her comments directly, um, instead focused on how she had fallen short of expectations. Um, and I, I just want to kind of highlight some of the comments that were made in that recording. Um, and I think like this is kind of maybe the the big comment in particular is uh, something she said about one of the other council members' child. Um, so she commented about council, mem council member Mike Bonin's child as behaving uh, parece changuito or like a monkey. Um, they're raising him like a little white kid. This kid needs a beat down. Let me take him around the corner and I'll bring him back. And then she also referred to Mike Bonin as a little bitch. Um, and just for context, Mike, context, Mike Bonin is a white LA council member, uh, and he and his husband have an adopted black child. Um, Martinez also said of the LA district attorney, George Gascon, fuck that guy, he's with the blacks. Uh, and then further on, like in the recording, she mocked um, the Oaxacans uh, living in Koreatown, which is a neighborhood in L.A., um, saying, I see a lot of little, short, dark people. Um, and then also present in the room during that meeting were council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon and L.A. Labor Federation President Ron Herrera. Um, and... It's still unclear who recorded it. Um, it was posted on Reddit and that account has since been deleted. Uh, and I think as well, LA, the LA Labor Federation President Ron Herrera has also resigned. Um, so right now there are still a lot of protests going on calling for the other two council members, Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon to um, resign as well. Um, they did also deliver apologies and kind of acknowledged the situation, but of course said, you know, they did not engage in the conversation, but also kind of acknowledge that they, they neither did they step up to stop the comments or stop the situation. Um, and they all initially had issued statements to LA Times. So Martinez, um, her initial statement, um, you know, before she resigned and everything, um, said, in a moment of intense frustration and anger, I let the situation get the best of me. I hold myself accountable for these comments. For that, I am sorry. And um, De Leon provided a statement as well to LA Times saying that he regrets appearing to condone and even contribute to certain insensitive comments made about a colleague and his family. And he's since reached out to that person, meaning Mike um, Bonin. And then Gil Cedillo, uh, his initial response to that, uh, when this first came out was saying that he does not remember the conversation. Um, so I thought that was interesting because he was in the room. That's such extreme language. Um, and then uh, Mike Bonin, who was who is the council member um, whose child was uh, mocked, and you know the and a lot of the statements were made about his child. Um, he and his husband issued a statement calling for the resignations of Herrera, Martinez, and De Leon, 
and called um, called that meeting, so that redistricting meeting, a coordinated effort to weaken Black representation in Los Angeles. Um, so the council uh, reconvened this past Wednesday, October 12th, um, and because of all of the protesters, um, they could not actually continue any business because um, people were still calling for the resignation of the other council members. Um, and this is also happening as well, just like a few uh, weeks before the elections um, for the the mayor's office and, the, and council seats in L.A. Um, the attorney general, Rob uh, Bonta, said that he would investigate the redistricting process and his investigation could potentially lead to civil liability or criminal charges, depending on what um, is found. And then one of the articles um, quoted uh, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, um, who was previously a member of the L.A. City Ethics Commission. Um, she said that she doesn't see that it would prompt criminal charges. However, she said a probe could force redrawing council districts, even though the current maps are going to be used in this coming election. Um, she said it is so rare to have audio where it gives the impression that they're explicitly drawing lines on the basis of race. If in the end we determine these lines were illegally drawn, there needs to be a remedy for that, even though practically it's a disaster. Um, so, yeah, that was <laughs> that's pretty much the story. I just kind of summarized it. Um, there's a lot still going on right now. A lot of people in L.A. I know are protesting. I still kind of calling for the resignation of the those other two council members that were part of that conversation. And I think today, like, um, I don't know the details, but I know, like, on Twitter, uh, people had mentioned that there's, like, more recordings coming out, um, specifically um, for uh, specifically comments by uh, that L.A. Uh, Labor Federation president, Ron Herrera. Um, so I saw something briefly about that. I didn't, like, look at it in detail, but... Um, I think like if you're really interested in learning more about this and just kind of like just kind of what's happening in L.A. politics, which, again, is has always kind of been. Um, I think just kind of. I don't know, I, I was going to say like marred, but maybe marred by like this racial tension and divide. Um, there are a couple of accounts on Twitter, I think, are really good to follow. Um, so there is uh, Knock LA, which is actually a, a journalism project. So it's a local independent nonprofit journalism pro project run by volunteer and freelance journalists in LA. And then Ground Game LA, because um, these two groups, and they're actually connected, um, they've been kind of talking about and writing about and just highlighting the racism and corruption in LA politics for a while. So I think they're really good accounts to kind of keep up to date, not just this situation, but just kind of LA politics and just kind of the racism and racial divide in LA in general. Uh, but yeah. So this recording was happening when they were 
like at work, like during a session, it wasn't like it was a separate private conversation, right? It was just them though in the room. So it was literally, so I guess technically, so not an actual meeting um, because it was really only them, but they were talking about um, redistricting. And I think they were specifically trying to, I guess, like figuring out like what would benefit them in this, in like the coming elections so that they, you know, like, again, like, try, I guess, like trying to reduce maybe the, the number of black voters, depending on the district. So like to help who they want to win to actually gain council seats. That's what it sounds like to me and this was and it was it happened last year like the actual conversation right which i'm i'm question i want to know where it came from like who decided to leak it and for what reason because i yeah. feel like it, it and to be wouldn't and to me it seems like wouldn't it have had to been someone in the room because as yeah. far as i can tell no one else was in the room with them so i'm not sure like <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> I want to know, and I feel like it might come out that the person who leaked it, they probably agree with what she was saying, but like had their own reasons for trying to hold this over these people's heads. Because if you sat on it for that long, if it's something that you really believe, like this is horrible, oh my, I'm so scandalized, not have you wouldn't have waited a year, and and. Also, it's like interesting that it's being leaked right before the election as well. It's like it's it was a strategic thing. <laughs> um, I just found, I also found it like not funny, but kind of ridiculous that one of them was like, I just I don't remember that conversation like that was. Well, I feel <laughs> like if they talk like that all the time. Well, that's the thing is like someone I think like that's the thing is like this is not I don't think this is necessarily a shock that you know they're saying these things because I'm sure I don't know it makes me kind of think like these are the people and not just this situation but like there are people that get elected into these roles and they have all this power to you know like make these policies and all of this thing but all of those things are influenced by their racism like and and of course to win you have to kind of play the game and like oh I'm I'm for all people and I'm this and that but like once you get there you're going to because you now have that power you are going to kind of try to shape things um to further like put down the people that you don't think should have equal rights or whatever like that I feel like so I don't think people are necessarily shocked by this well I will say like I don't because I feel like there's always at least because I when I lived in LA I feel like there was always like that tension there and there's clearly like a separation there's clearly a racial divide and people I don't know there's there isn't that people do like to talk about like solidarity with like people of color and like all the marginalized groups are (laughs) you know like they're helping out each other and all of that but that's not necessarily the case like there is just because like another group is being marginalized or 
you know, like also, you know, are fighting for certain rights, like doesn't mean that they can't, they're not oppressing like another group that's also being marginalized. True. Yeah. And I think that it really, the fact that she was really, you know, she unloaded the full clip because she was naming so many different groups. So not only was she saying that hard, that disgusting stuff about the young black child, who, by the way, is a two-year-old. Yeah. That, you're talking about calling him names and talking about like threatening violence against a two-year-old child. And I think that she used, like she called the man a bitch. That was probably like a homophobic remark because mm-hmm. he's married to a man. Mm-hmm. She's an anti-Semite. She's anti-Indigenous, mm-hmm. you know. Which um, I I saw on Twitter a lot of um a lot of Indigenous people from LA were mentioning that you know this was an example of what you lose out on sometimes when mm-hmm. you use the broad label of like Latino or Latinx. Yeah. Under mm-hmm. that, there's still like there's people who are black and they're Latino, or there's people who are indigenous and they're from Mexico right. or Central America. They're not automatically viewed on equal footing as someone like this Nuri Martinez woman who mm-hmm. I don't know how she identifies she seems to think that she's white in her heart but you know she's very light-skinned or whatever like it's not I, all the we're not all in the same boat it's like even though we kind we are but we're not because we don't all see each other in that way and a lot of people's brains even if they've experienced discrimination, they still feel like they're higher up the chain than yeah. somebody else. Yeah, because I mean, when you think it all like comes, or not it all comes down to, but I think like a lot of it is literally like colorism. Like it's people who are literally like darker than you, like whether or not you're in the same. I don't know group like ethnic group or or have the same background I feel like that I don't know like that's when a lot of people's racism comes out I think or it's like more it's revealed more when they're because like you said like within that group there are people who are of different races and all of this stuff like and different you know like skin tones so and the darker people tend to be the ones that are that face that same kind of anti-black or like just facing like racism in general or colorism just because they're darker skinned or like their features are not like close to whiteness I guess or white features I don't know yeah, that's true. I agree with you. However, with this particular woman, if she was talking about Armenians and then also Jewish people, she's on the next level. She's beyond the beyond. Like, that's, she really hates everybody. Yeah. And she had, I didn't read her apology statement, but I had seen people were commenting on oh. how she had made something about saying something to all the little the little latina girls out be there an inspiration to them yeah. like, to inspire them to hate like, exactly because and according and she was actually i think she was the first um latina to be la council president so she like her presidency or her or you know her seat was like a um a historical thing 
or like she you know like so i i mean yeah so this is kind of sad to see (laughs) it's sad but you know what it also is like it's good that, to know that <laughs> it's good that it's out there. No, I, I'm gonna. I'm. I think that it's a reminder of you know a lot of people that think that oh like I'm gonna get into the system and I'll be I'll do good, and I think that you know the system self select like it's it selects for people that are already in agreement with the way things already are. Because yeah. it's like she's the first, but you know, if she had been a Latina who was like really for everyone and really trying to advance, you know, equality for people within her group, but also outside of the group, like I don't think she would have made it to that level. It's like you get yeah. to that level because you have these attitudes and you're willing to, that's why you're allowed to get to that level. You're willing to like sell people out, you're willing to sell your soul. <laughs> to get that one yeah because yeah you're right like you have to you have to play that game and because those are the people those are what other people are saying like that's how they're talking so you have to be one of them or you get to that point because you already are one of them like you're thinking like them already exactly and if this was a group of them all talking this way or she was talking like this not anybody said anything they didn't say anything so that with it or they're willing they don't think it's that big of a deal and what does that say someone recorded it and sat on recording for over a year or like a year like that means that they didn't really care about the content like their point was i want to see this person resign or whatever like i'm I'm trying to stick it to her but like i don't care about the actual because why would you hold on to this yeah and it's like you know it's like what you were saying before it's like people I think that sometimes there's this attitude that like oh it doesn't matter or that was a private conversation it's not yeah. what you, it's not what you say it's what you do or like what she was saying but what you do is informed by what you think mm-hmm. and how you feel about people and it it just makes you cuz how many people are like this but they're not sloppy enough to be recorded you know to get recorded yeah. but that's that is how they think how they feel and then when they make these rules or decisions or whatever they're doing it with that in their mind you know so i hope for some naive people that that's a wake up that this is a wake up call about you know people are feeling more and more emboldened to not have to hide stuff that they used to have at least enough sense to know that oh this is fringe or I'll be in trouble but I really just think more and more people it's like they're getting hyped up and amped up to just be like whatever and just saying wild stuff and he was a quote-unquote democrat so it's not just people in the right wing either there's a lot of these attitudes that are rampant in all different levels of decision making Mm -hmm. all right so on that note we're going to head into our next musical break Uh, i don't know if reese is listening but this is a belated birthday dedication to her since we were just talking about california she's in california this is california dreaming by bobby womack and thank you for listening to objections to the rule on radio free brooklyn we'll be right back all the leaves are brown 
and the sky is gray. I went for a walk on a winter's day. I'd be saving warm if I was in LA. California dreaming on such a winter's day. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is Jasmine, and I'm moving on to the world story for the week. Uh, So this information comes from Al Jazeera. The article was written on October the 12th, and the title is Europe Turns to Africa for Gas as Alternative to Russia. Africa's natural gas reserves are vast. And countries like Algeria have pipelines linked to Europe, but exports remain low. A new liquefied natural gas project off Africa's western coast may only be 80% complete, but already the prospect of a new energy supplier has drawn visits from the leaders of Poland and Germany. The initial field near Senegal and Mauritania's coastlines is expected to contain about 15 trillion cubic feet, of gas, five times more than what gas-dependent Germany used in all of 2019, but production isn't expected to start until the end of next year. That won't help solve Europe's energy crisis triggered by Russia's war in Ukraine. Still, Gordon Burrell, an executive for project co-developer BP, which I assume is British Petroleum, says the development could not be more timely as Europe seeks to reduce its reliance on Russian natural gas to power factories, generate electricity, and heat homes. While Africa's natural gas reserves are vast and North African countries like Algeria have pipelines already linked to Europe, a lack of infrastructure and security challenges have long stymied producers in other parts of the continent from scaling up exports. Established African producers are cutting deals or reducing energy use so they have more to sell to boost their finances, but some leaders warn that hundreds of millions of Africans lack electricity and supplies are needed at home. Projects face the risk of energy thefts and high costs. Other promising countries like Mozambique have discovered large gas reserves only to see projects delayed by violence from armed groups. Europe has been scrambling to secure alternative sources as Moscow has reduced natural gas flows to EU countries, triggering soaring energy prices and growing expectations of a recession. The 27-nation EU, whose energy ministers are meeting this week to discuss a gas price cap, is bracing for the possibility of a complete Russian cutoff, but has still managed to fill gas reserves to 90%. African leaders like Senegalese President Macky Sall want their countries to cash in on these projects even as they are dissuaded from pursuing fossil fuels. They don't want to export at all either. An estimated 600 million Africans lack access to electricity. 
it is legitimate, fair, and equitable that Africa, the continent that pollutes the least and lags furthest behind in the industrialization process, should exploit its available resources to provide basic energy, improve the competitiveness of its economy, and achieve universal access to electricity, Saul told the UN General Assembly last month. In Nigeria, ambitious plans have yet to yield results despite years of planning. The country exported less than 1% of its vast natural gas reserves last year. A proposed 4,400-kilometer-long pipeline that would take Nigerian gas to Algeria through Niger has been stalled since 2009, mainly because of its estimated cost of $13 billion. In the South, Mozambique is slated to become a major exporter of LNG after significant deposits were found along its Indian Ocean coast in 2010. France's Total Energies invested $20 billion and started work to extract gas that would be liquefied in a plant it was building in Palma in the northern Cabo Delgado province but violence from armed groups forced Total Energies to indefinitely scupper the project last year. Mozambican officials have pledged to secure the Palma area to allow work to resume. Italian firm Eni, meanwhile, pressed ahead with plans to pump and liquefy some of its gas deposits discovered in Mozambique in 2011 and 2014. Eni established a platform in the Indian Ocean 50 miles offshore, away from the violence in Cabo Delgado. It's the first floating LNG facility in the deep waters off Africa, Eni said, with a gas liquefaction capacity of 3.4 million tons per year. The platform liquefied its first gas on October 2nd, according to Africa Energy, and the first shipment is expected to depart for Europe in mid-October. This article... For me, when I read it, I heard alarm bells going off, or like when I just, when I first saw the title, because I think it's so, it's such an old story of European countries being like, oh, Africa has this natural resource, we're in trouble, so we're just gonna look towards that. But I do appreciate that the article kept mentioning like, well, how many people in these African countries don't have their basic needs met currently, but we're jumping to let's ramp up all this production to send this resource out. Yeah, I kind of, I immediately thought like, oh, (laughs) they're just going to, again, like take advantage. Because I think you said in the article, and I've heard this before, I guess, like that it's, it has like, I guess like, countries in Africa have like these low they're not contributing as much to the the climate disaster <laughs> the change but that I, it made me think like it's interesting that they're not putting you know like they're not contributing as much as a lot of other countries but they're not receiving any of the benefit I guess like not benefits but they don't there's a lot of resources I guess that they're not getting so I was thinking like oh this is going to be another way to kind of basically like the the resources that they actually do have it's still not being used 
to help them, I guess. Like, they're now going to be exporting it to other countries, like to European countries. Yeah, and I think that it's, I mean, heads of state, no matter what country you're in, there's a lot of corruption and people that, like, the country itself, like, a lot of countries are not actually poor as far as not having resources or what is necessary for life. It's that they're exploited. Yeah. And then the people that are in charge of the country, you know, let's say like, oh, like, yeah, this is great. Like, this is going to make a lot of money for our country if we sell this resource. But some, a lot of times the people that are making those decisions, like, are going to be then siphoning off most of the mm-hmm. money for themselves. Like, it's not going to trickle down. Yeah. You know, and I'm scared, too, just because this is also, it's still a fossil fuel yeah, it's true that like Africa and and um, places in the Middle East, like we talked about um, the flooding in Pakistan a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. That's also a country that isn't contributing very much at all to um, the climate crisis, but they're bearing the brunt of it. But I also think that like countries that have not gotten to the level of dependence on fossil fuels that you see in the west like it shouldn't mm-hmm. be the goal to get up to that level yeah yeah i don't know i hope that people like fight back or that there's some kind of way to not only consider like the environment but also like how can you harness it and try to use it in as clean a way as possible for the people mm-hmm. already living in the country itself it kind of reminds me of how things go like in Jamaica where, and I'm sure like in other Caribbean countries, but where I feel like there are a lot of resources there that get exploited. Like these other kind of big countries come in. And of course, like the government there is very like happy about <laughs> I guess the potential money and like, you know, like these new things being built in a country. But then I think there's like a, I guess it's like a double edged sword. Cause like, you're not, that stuff isn't actually going to the people who live there and they're struggling and there isn't like in, you know, like in some areas, like it's, I feel like there, there are other ways like the government could do better in like for these countries like in just kind of supporting their people and giving if they're going to go this to this length like that money or whatever it is whatever resource it is should actually be benefiting the people in the country but that's not happening yeah and it does the thing about this is I I think that when it comes to Africa and I'm sure a lot of other places, it's like once something is, once some material is discovered that can be of benefit to like capital in the global North, that material immediately is treated like way more important than human life. And then it becomes like by hook or by crook, we're going to do whatever we can to defend this pipeline or whatever, because that's how we get our money from xyz european country and then it's like if poor people in within the country are protesting it or they're like this is messing up the environment where we're at or like they're desperate so they're trying to siphon off some it's like 
some of these governments, you know, they they will shoot their own people down to be yeah. like, you can't threaten this project because it's bringing in money. And I don't know, like even just seeing the picture of the Senegalese president sitting down with Putin and they're smiling and all this, I'm just shaking my head like, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, but we can hope for the best and that things are taking a turn with climate awareness. Like maybe it won't go the way things have gone historically but yeah we don't know all right so on that note we're going to move on to some good news and Alyssa, you are up yeah so um the good news story for today um i'm getting it from amny it's a story by ben brockfeld Um, And it's titled DOT, or Department of Transportation, Cuts Ribbon on Newly Fortified Skirmerhorn Street Bike Lane. And I probably said Skirmerhorn wrong. I know we all pronounce it differently. Um, So Skirmerhorn Skirmerhorn Street in downtown Brooklyn got a new two-way bike lane on Wednesday, October 12th. Um, Or they cut the ribbon on it on on October 12th. it's a new two-way protected bike lane um, following several months of work. It's painted green and features east and westbound lanes for cyclists, um, for motor vehicles. The street has been converted from a two-way thoroughfare into a one-way street going east between Smith Street and 3rd Avenue. Um, Transportation Commissioner uh, Adonis Rodriguez said This used to be a chaotic two-way street with rampant double parking. The standard bike lanes were often blocked, forcing cyclists to mix with vehicles in traffic. Um, The old street design featured bike lanes in both directions that were often derided as dysfunctional as they were unpainted and unprotected, and the roadway was constantly backed up by double-parked cars and trucks. The new bike lane is separated much further from the ve- the vehicle lane and is protected from traffic by a parking lane. Um, cutting the ribbon signaled also signaled the start of Biketober, which I have not heard of before, but it's an annual celebration of Bike Month. Um, so they so here in New York, um, they have events promoting cycling all over the city, including workshops to help children and adults learn how to ride and get helmet fittings. And also there are prizes that they give away as well. Um, So yeah, it's a very short story, but I thought I figure this is a really, this is good news to me because I do think one of the things I really like about New York is that um, it's a pretty accessible city. It's walkable. Um, and I, I do think that any move toward making it less of a car-centric place and more accessible and more protected for or for cyclists and pedestrians is like a better move. Um, more green space, better signage. Because uh, I, I think that's important because I, I find that, again, like not everyone can afford a car. Cars are kind of annoying and like congest everything. So um, I thought this was a really good story. And hopefully they'll continue to create more protected bike lanes around the city. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I never heard of Biketober either. I Well, everyone listening, I do not know how to ride a bike. You could I, go to an event on Biketober and learn because they have a workshop. I could. Yeah. Will I? I don't know. I guess I'll I'll have to Google it and see. I'll see if my spirit moves me to do it. But yeah, yeah. like I I do agree. It's like I I think it's really shocking. I think once you leave New York to see how many places are literally built around driving. Yeah. You gotta drive mad long to do simple stuff like. And I feel like you don't really if you're in a car all the time, you're not really getting a sense of like where you live like the environment like getting to know streets and things like that or like seeing other people walk around as well like I feel like if you're all just in cars it there's less chance to I guess like have those I don't know like to get to know your learn more about your environment and I feel like even like care for it (laughs) in a way because you're not yeah. experiencing it like you're not out and about like experiencing it yeah so. it's it's real i mean it's an individualistic mode of transport for a very individualistic society you know like they definitely yeah. have their place because of course not everyone can walk around or not everyone can bike like there are times where like you do need a vehicle but the fact that things are built as if every single person is expected to own and operate their own car yeah it's not clearly it's not being sustained the environment (laughs) is about to get us up out of here so yeah any green news is good news well Alyssa, yes (laughs) we did it we did a show we did it thank you so much for being my guest host this week i really appreciate it it was fun thanks for having me okay thank you for listening to this week's episode um this was objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn you can stay tuned for more brooklyn-based radio and for our last song this is bad bunny with titi me pregunto have a good weekend everybody bye Ey, Titi me preguntó si tengo muchas novias Muchas novias, hoy tengo a una, mañana a otra Ey, pero no hay boda Titi me preguntó si tengo muchas novias Muchas novias, hoy tengo a una, mañana a otra Me las voy a llevar a todas pa' un VIP, un VIP Ey, saluden a Titi, vamos a tirarnos un selfie Say cheese, ey, que sonrían las que ya les metí en un VIP VIP, ey, saluden a Titi, vamos a tirarnos un selfie, say cheese, que sonrían las que ya se olvidaron de mí. Me gustan mucho las Gabriela, las Patricia, las Nicole, la Sofía, mi primera novia en Kinder María y mi primer amor se llamaba Talía. Tengo una colombiana que me escribe todos los días y una mexicana.